This is the Game Misconduct Podcast with Don LaGreca. And welcome to the Monday edition of Game Misconduct. I'm Don LaGreca. Of course, Monday means EJ Raddick. And I'm kind of floored because just moments ago as I was, you know, getting all the equipment ready to do the podcast, I learned of the passing of Tom Curvers and certainly Islander fans, Canadian fans, but more specifically Devil fans remember Tommy as being a really solid defenseman and just find out that he passed away of cancer, EJ. And I know you got to know him uh, as a scout. I got to know him when he was a scout, kind of bouncing around the, you know, the halo at the Meadowlands or, or different places yep. at the Garden. And, uh, you know, certainly kind of just thrown back uh, by uh, the passing of Tommy at the age of 58. Yeah, it's uh, it's sad. It's, it's a heartbreaking story. He's got uh, two – I think he has four children. He was married twice two younger children in their teenage years. So from that standpoint, it's always really sad to hear something like that. Um, Tommy, uh, he was one of the good guys for me. I mean, when I got into the scouting in the mid to late 90s, I guess it's more of the mid 90s. I mean, I was really just uh, someone that uh, I had made some connections in Dallas and the Dallas Stars took a chance on me, and I had come back to the New York area and was going to a lot of games, and I was not someone that was really known by scouts, who were mostly ex-players and uh, or people who were connected in some way to management. So, you know, for me, uh, there was a handful of guys in that time that were really welcoming, um, and... Uh, you know, he was. I always say, you know, Ace Bailey was one of them. Ace passed in 9/11. Was on one of those flights. Tragically passed away. And you know, Peter Mahovlich and uh, there's a couple guys and Archie Henderson and Tom Curver was was uh, eventually in that group and just a real pleasure to get to know and uh, a terrific guy and had a lot of good hockey conversations with him over the years and uh, went on to some more senior management jobs and. Arizona and Tampa and then in Minnesota where he was most recently and was a terrific uh, puck-moving defenseman in the NHL and uh, just really sad to hear the news. Just a really good person, really great guy and, uh, you know, really sad to hear it. And I know he had been ill for a while and then he had seemed to recover and as is the case, as so many of the listeners can, you know, can attack, can can relate to. I mean, with cancer, we all know people, if we haven't had it directly, we know people in our own lives who deal with it, and uh, you know, it got Tommy Curvers today, so it's just a sad, sad day, and, and just one of the real good guys in the game. Yeah, and you take a look at his stats, I mean, you know, and I know it was a different era, EJ, but we're talking about, you know, 88-89 with New Jersey, 16 goals, 50 assists for 66 points. I mean, that, you know, yeah, this day and age, you you get a defenseman to produce like that. He's got a you know real shot at the Norris Trophy, right? I mean, so yeah, there's there you you paint the picture of Tom Curvis because you listen. He was involved in one of the biggest trades in the history of the New Jersey Devils, right? He gets traded to Toronto for a first round pick to become Scott Niedermeyer. You know, so that kind of gives you like, oh, what a bad trade, Tom Curvis for Scott Niedermeyer. Well, Tom Curvis was really good and probably warranted you know, a, a look at a first-round pick. The problem is Toronto was so bad that year that it ended up becoming the third overall pick that would have been the second overall pick if it had not been for San Jose coming into the league 
and getting awarded the second overall pick. So we should never, ever confuse Tom Curvers for not being a really solid defenseman. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And uh, he was a good offensive defenseman. And it was funny because the conversation I remember the most that, that stayed with me the longest was the discussion we had about plus-minus stats and how for the offensive defenseman, uh, you know, you're dealing – you know, it was kind of one of those things that was a little bit skewed against you because when you were trying to defend a lead late and teams had the opportunity to score empty net goals, oftentimes you wouldn't be on the ice in those situations, thus no chance for a plus. But when you were trailing in the last 10, 12 minutes of a game, you would be out there and you'd be pushing to make a play and pushing to, to create offense. And, you know, subsequently you could end up surrendering a goal as, uh, as part of that effort. And then you get a minus. So, you know, we, we talked about how, you know, different types of players were impacted differently by that that particular stat. And uh, it was a great conversation. At that time in my life, it was particularly illuminating. So uh, he always had time to chat. He was just a really, really good guy to be around. There's a lot of people around the National Hockey League today that are really, that are really heartbroken by this news because uh, he impacted – uh, a lot of lives and was just as I said just a joy to be around and my sympathies go out to his family and and children and uh, you know just a sad day to, to get that news yeah for sure so I was just kind of taken aback I popped on the computer to get ready for my uh, spot with you and and saw that so I, I knew that you had known him and I wanted to be able to get uh, to get that conversation on board so I, I appreciate the memories and the conversation all right let's get into uh, last night in one of the more, hey, it's a podcast, I can use it, ballsy moves by a head coach, right? Yeah. To bench, <laughs> yes. to bench yes. Flurry for That's Leonard. And, and I, I I didn't agree with it at the time, but but I, I always look at these things, EJ, and I say nobody knows the team better than the head coach. And if he's yep. making this move, then I, I have to I have to side with him because he's got information that we don't have. But make no mistake, EJ, and it looked like it was going to happen, and it wouldn't have been because of Leonard. But if that game ends up one nothing, even though Leonard played well, I don't know if Pete DeBoer or the Vegas Golden Knights get up from that decision. But now he looks like a genius. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was, to your point, it was a ballsy call <laughs> by the coach and by the coaching staff and, and by the group there. That's a big decision. And, uh, you know, I would imagine that that was discussed internally. I'm sure George McPhee and uh, Kelly McCrimmon, although he is kind of in the COVID protocol now, but I'm sure that he was, you know, included in that conversation. I'm sure it was something that they really had to think about long and hard. Really, mostly because Robin has just not played a lot in the last several weeks, you know, which amounts to almost two months. And he only played the one game against the Avalanche. And to me, that circumstance was so different because, you know, when we talked about it, I felt at the time coming off a game seven on a Friday night, an emotional game, getting into Colorado, playing on Sunday at altitude, the team was tired, Flurry had played a lot, that that decision was one to let's try to get through this game. We'll take a shot with Robin. Maybe Robin will play great. Um, but the way we have to look at it is we need Marc-Andre Flurry to rest and we need to buy him a few days. And remember, they had an extra day off after game one 
to get their legs under them. And as it turned out, I mean, they were indeed able to get their legs under them after a really tough game one, and, and Robin didn't play well, but the team in front of him didn't play very well. And so that made, uh, you know, this decision even kind of more tricky for for DeBoer and for the Vegas Gold Knights. But when you listen to him after the game, he talked about Flurry's age and the number of games they had played in a short period of time and the fact there would be no other opportunity for him to get a break. And so they just felt that uh, that Robin, who had played, has played very well in the past, I mean, this is the guy that was a Vesna finalist not too long ago and had a, a good season around a number of injury issues that he had. And, you know, let's face it, Marc-Andre Fleury just played really great and kind of took the job back. But, you know, I, I get the sense that, you know, again, they know in that room all the details, all the particulars about all their players. The coaches always know. The coaches are trying to win on that particular day. DeBoer even said that last night. I mean, I tweeted that, Donnie, and you get some wise guys who – you know, who want to say, well, great analysis. You know, this is hockey. This is pro sports. This isn't brain surgery. Sometimes we don't need to be really all that smart or clever to figure out what's going on. At the end of the day, the coach is trying to find a way to win a game on that particular night, and that was certainly a situation where they needed to win because if they lose and go down 3-1, they're probably, up, you know, in in a really difficult spot. So Pete DeBoer made the decision. He's got a lot of experience, and Robin Leonard came in, and he was lights out good. I don't know what else to say. The first period, Don, I would say he made four, four five, or six saves oh, yeah. that easily could have went the other way. And, uh, you know, he was he was the reason they were in that game at the end, and he was the reason they eventually ended up winning it. So it was a great – it ended up being a great call. It was a bold move. And, uh, again, a lesson to be learned for those of us who observe fans and media – even if it doesn't work out, the coaches are trying to win on that particular night, and they know their teams better than we do. And in this particular case, it paid off. And, and listen, that save on Cofield was probably the turning point, right? That that game becomes two nothing. Oh, yeah. It's probably lights out, and he makes a, a huge save. Over. So, <laughs> and you know, and I know you kind of got into it with Mark Madden on Twitter, and I say into it just like the back and forth. Like he still believes that Flurry should have played, and just because Leonard wins doesn't make it the right decision yes it does that that's the way the world works it makes it the right decision you know if you had won the game you know eight seven then maybe you could have made the but he played great and and listen we analyze things based on the information that we have but I think sometimes we have to acknowledge that as much as we may know the coach and the staff know better and even if it didn't work yeah Pete would be destroyed but it wasn't like he went with his gut or just made some wacky move. Hey, let's just try this. No, listen, Pete DeBoer is trying to take his third different team to the Stanley Cup final. He knows what he's doing, and it worked. Now, it it, it creates an interesting dilemma for the next game. You know, so what do you yeah. do? Do you ride the hot hand? Do you go back to flurry? But, you know, I guess uh, you attack each problem as they come. But right now to say that it wasn't the right move would be folly. It worked. Yeah, and, Don, you know, I wanted to add about Mark, who I really like Mark Madden. I've known him for a long time. And, you know, Mark is, uh, is someone that has, you know, he has strong opinions. But, and Mark, I don't know if he would admit this if he was here on us, but Mark has an affinity for Marc-Andre Fleury, as yeah. a lot of people do. You know, and Marc-Andre Fleury has had a really interesting, fascinating career with these crazy circumstances where he's in, and then he's out, and then he's in, and, you know, the whole thing last year. And people, 
at the end of the day, I don't know very many people who don't like Mark Andre Fleury. He is a terrific person by all accounts, and Mike dealing Pete, and he's one of those guys. There's not too many bad days in Mark Andre Fleury's life. He's got a great smile. He's got great charisma. He's a great goaltender. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. But I think that colors Mark's opinion a little bit. I think he really likes Mark Andre, as he, you know, as, as as I just said, as most people do. He covered him in Pittsburgh. I'm sure he got to know him. And, you know, I'm sure that that has something to do feeling some sort of uh, protective of someone you like and for saying, hey, you know, this isn't the right decision. At the end of the day, the coaches are trying to win that game. They know the players way better than us. They're around them all the time. They're not in it to lose. They made the call. It ended up working out. And at the end of the day, you can't now say, well, it was the wrong decision, but, you know, it worked out. No. This is pro sports where it's, as Mike Babcock would say, we're in a winning business, and, you know, it's a winning business. And there was, a, a guy told me a story last night, Donnie, a funny story of an old scout who used to complain about the 1980 Olympic team for Team USA, that a couple of guys got cut, and yet, you know, hey, they should have been on the team. It was the wrong decision. And even after we had the miracle on ice, the team won the gold medal, the guy would continue to talk about, well, it was a mistake. No. When you win, there's no mistakes. You got it right. So, you know, I love Mark. I think he's a terrific uh, broadcaster, and I've been fortunate enough to be around him at different times and on his show many times. But I do think that uh, sometimes our personal relationships color our feelings, and I think this was one of those circumstances. So, uh, you know, we can agree to disagree, but... At the end of the day, when you win the game, it's the right decision. And, and, yeah, and people overreact, okay? And, and, and here's what I mean by this, all right? It's a very fluid situation. You look at the Islanders, right? Sorokin was their guy, yeah. and then they went to Varlamov. Why? Because they felt Varlamov was the number one, and, and, and I, w- I, w- I wasn't sure that that was the right move. It ended up being the right move by Barry because I thought Sor- Sorokin played well. You know, but he said Varlamov's my number one guy. I'm putting him back in. The board could very easily do that for tomorrow and just say, "Listen, I, I, this is just a move that I decided to make. We're going to go back to Flurry." Let's not forget, Flurry was on the trade block this year, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's not like you know. And I, listen, I saw Brodeur in his miracle rookie year sit at games in the Boston Garden because. You know, Lou and Lemaire felt that because Terreri played well at the Boston Garden when he was at Providence, that that's he's gonna. It, we we get so caught up in like these moves, like oh, you can't bench the starting quarterback because then it creates a controversy. Well, if you're the coach and you've got the right room and you've got the right methods, you can do this. It's not impossible to give yeah. Flurry the job back and say go out and get him in Game Five. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll be curious to see what Pete decides to do here. Um, Robin played extremely well. The dynamic of the way Montreal plays, it might be, it might benefit them to play Leonard. He's a bigger guy, and the Canadians attack the net a lot. And he is, uh, you know, someone that's really good low, and you saw that last night. Yeah. But I I think he could go either way in game five. And it's, again, it's another tough call because no matter what you do, if you don't win, you're wrong. <laughs> right, well, that's all that's it is. It's about it is. Win- It's about winning games and whatever gets you through the night. And and, and I, I trust Pete DeBoer will make the right decision. But you know, back to the game itself. Listen, you and I are simpatico. I, I hate when people complain about the officials. 
but I don't know what the heck was going on last night. I mean, can you just call what you see? I, I, I don't I, – yeah. this whole I let him play. All right, when, when you let him play, this is what ends up happening. We're just – crazy things are going on and then when you do make a call it's like oh my god how do you make that call when you let everything else go what is so wrong with just calling the penalties as you see them i i I don't i really don't get why they let them play as long as they did and miss that many calls for both teams yeah i mean i'll just talk about two particular plays for me and i thought on the broadcast they were real especially on the first one i thought pierre mcguire did a good job of pointing it out was Joel Edmondson cross-checked William Carrier right on the number, between the numbers and on his name plate into the boards. And really, I mean, he hammered him from behind into the boards. It was clearly a cross-checking penalty right in front of Dan O'Rourke. And he chose not to make a call there. Now, when you decide at that point not to make a call, the message you're sending to the players is, well, we're going to listen to you guys play right on the edge, probably over the edge, and we're going to just, we're going to watch. And, uh, you know, so now if you're a player, you're like, well, I mean, we're trying to win a Stanley Cup. There's a lot at stake here. I'm going to play right to that edge and probably over it. And then later in the game, in the second period, when there had still been no calls, I think, to that point, uh, Thomas Nosek made a similar play, hammering Shea Weber into the boards from behind. There was no call. Weber subsequently hammered Nosek with a cross-check or a slash, on two different occasions, I think kind of punched him in the back of the head. Still, there was no call. It was only finally when the two players kind of got together and uh, were in each other's face that the referee blew the whistle and then called both guys. Now, all of a sudden, he's in a situation where, okay, you know, I have to now manage the game a little bit. And then there was, I guess it was a hooking penalty or a slash on Nick Suzuki he called not long after that. But, you know... I just, and I, again, we're we're together on this. I hate, you know, spending a lot of time talking about the officials because it's a hard, hard job. It's a very difficult job to do. You're, the guys are, are buzzing around. You're trying to look through players to see what happens in a lot of cases. Um, you're trying to, you know, you're just, it's, it's just a tough job. I've done it once, Don. I never wanted to do it again. Okay. It's a really hard job. But that said... When a guy gets cross-checked to his knees right in front of you from behind, and he, I mean, you got to put your arm up. And so it, it creates a situation then where then these guys get into a game management mode. And, you know, I don't think that's what we want. So, you know, for me, I acknowledge it's a tough jogging about the officials since the beginning of hockey, and it's never going to be perfect, and you always have to overcome situations in the game that arise and take advantage of opportunities when you can get them. But uh, I wish that the, the guys, would it would be less of this let them play because at the end of the day, you know, the officials talk about not wanting to impact the game with penalties, but you impact the game when you don't call penalties. So this, it's, it's kind of a tough spot either way. So for me, if I see a penalty in front of me, just call it. I mean, that's the way I would be. But again, I acknowledge that it's a really difficult job, and I certainly would never want to do it. But, I mean, last you know, there's been a couple of these games lately. The Islander game, uh, game three, with uh, the player on the net where he gave a penalty to, like, they gave a penalty to Sergachev instead of giving a penalty to both players, and then there was the feeling it seemed like we have to give one to Tampa. And then there was that uh, interference call on Pellick, which was kind of mind-boggling on an icing play that you would call a penalty there. So, um I think you're better off just calling the penalties in front of you and be communicative to the players 
at all times and then just try to be consistent. I think that's all the players ask for. Yeah, that's it. And you know what? I'm not going to be fooled. It's so easy to say, okay, everything's okay. Vegas is back even. No, 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 no. This, this series, I, I think this series is going the distance, and I think this is going to go right down to the wire. I agree. I mean, Montreal has now f- fully convinced me they can play with Vegas. Um, they belong where they are. They're playing tremendous hockey. Uh, uh, they're getting the goaltending. They're getting what they need. I mean, listen, the off- the offense might be a little bit of a struggle, but you know, it, it is for Vegas too. So I, I think this is – I would not be surprised if we're sitting there watching an overtime in Game 7, like that fine line these next three. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I think, you know, it's interesting. Montreal, I've said it going back to the first round. Now, Ducharme is not on the bench. Luke Richardson is the coach now, the head coach now because of the COVID situation with Ducharme. But there was about 10 minutes to go in the game last night. And, you know, Deshaun, when he decided to ride those four defensemen heavy, that's when Montreal really started to have success. Uh, I recently talked to Chris Pronger, who was one of the best ever. And he talked about the idea that when you're playing 4D, it's hard. Like, and this is one of the best ever. And he talked about that. It's tough. So, you know, I understand the situations for the coaches in that. But this was one of those circumstances in the game. It's one nothing. It's less than 10 minutes left. He's got John Merrill on the ice. And William Carlson basically beats John Merrill out of the corner and keeps the play alive, goes around the net, hits McNabb, and he leaks one through when we got a tie game at one. To me, with the Montreal Canadiens, I've been saying it, you know, since they started really doing this in, in game five against the Leafs. I just would have a hard time having anyone else out there on defense except those four guys when I have a one-goal lead in the third period. Yeah, um, Those guys would be out there every other shift. Now, I know guys get tired, guys get dinged up. It's going to happen. So, you know, there's only so much Luke Richardson or Dominic Ducharme could do. And, and John Merrill, he's not a, a bad player. It's just that I would, I don't, I trust those four guys. Those are the guys I want to win and lose with. And, in that situation, Merrill was on the ice, and uh, Carlson was able to make a good play out of the out of the corner and set up the game tying goal, and then eventually they won in overtime. So, um, I'm with you. It's a tight, tough series. Montreal's got good goaltending. The four big defensemen make it hard to get to the middle of the ice. They got a lot of interesting forwards there with some good young guys, uh, some older guys like Corey Perry and Eric Stahl who are playing their hearts out, and. Uh, you know, and some good guys like a Phil Deneau who probably doesn't get enough attention. No, nope. real good play centerman. So, and a guy like Brendan Gallagher who could play on my my team six days a week and twice on Sunday because he's such a competitor. Um, so they're a good team, and they're they're built for the playoffs, and we're seeing it right now, and yeah. they're relatively healthy. So yeah, I agree with you. That's going. I would assume it's going to go right to the end, and I'll be curious to see what. Pete DeBoer does in Game 5 and how it sets up the rest of the series with his goaltender. And I think we're going the distance and the Lightning and the Islanders as well. What a Game 4. And here's the analogy that I've, I've used quite a bit with the Rangers on the air because I think the Rangers were kind of in the same situation at times, struggling to score goals. See if you follow my analogy. Well, like Looking at the Islanders, the Islanders seem to be like a team, like a football team. A long, sustained drives to score. And the Lightning are a team that can have a 15-second drive, 70-yard touchdown. Like, it doesn't matter how well you do it. They're going to get theirs, and it can happen at any moment. Like, they don't have to build up momentum and, and, and stay in the zone. Like, at, at any time, bang, they can. that's the kind of team that they have. And, that, and that's kind of what you see. Like, 3 nothing going into the third period. You think, all right, Islanders are a lockdown team. This is over, <laughs> and it's not. And, boy, it, it took a defenseman with the save of the year. 
And, and that play, if the Islanders win, that that's that's David Tyree Jeter flip play level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they'll have a you know you'll have a, a statue of some sort or a portrait <laughs> of that hanging in the new building, right? If they were to win the Stanley Cup, because that was a huge moment and a great play by Ryan Bullock. And uh, you know, two things that went. Now, I don't know if they were un- if they weren't appreciated, but maybe a little underappreciated. The first one was, I think, was really underappreciated in that circum in that sequence. Was uh, Nikita Kucherov makes an unbelievable pass to Ryan McDonough. Now I don't even know if he knew McDonough was there or not, but Kucherov is so good that he probably knew McDonough was in the area, and that puck came back off the off the play from Palat, who like Pollock f- tried to fire it around the wall. Palat knocked it down, threw it over to Kucherov, who got it right to McDonough's forehand. It was a perfect strike. So here comes McDonough. Varlamov comes out being really aggressive because the clock is winding down. So a great play by Kucherov. And then what a play by Ryan McDonough to go spin around to read Varlamov there. You know, because you would think when you get a pass like that, in that dying seconds, the first instinct is just to fire it. But McDonough read Varlamov's aggressive nature on that play and went into a full spinorama, and that was a fantastic play by Ryan McDonough, and it's only superseded by the great work of Ryan Bullock, who got back to the front of the net and was able to stop that puck from going in. So to me, you had three great plays in a row. A lot of times in hockey we talk about mistakes, Let's let's talk about three great plays in a row. A great play by Kucherov, a great play by McDonough, and then an unbelievable play by by Ryan Pulak, who's you know one of the very best defensemen in the league. So just a great sequence, and one certainly for the for the ages. Yeah, and listen, if that goal goes in, it's one of the great goals I've ever seen. Can, when you consider yeah. the move, when you consider the timing of the game, you know, listen, all this is relative, right? They end up losing the game in overtime. It's kind of forgotten. Uh, the Pulik play gets forgotten about if the Islanders end up losing the next two, whatever. But but if this leads to something for the Isles, and it certainly can. But let's let us let us get to the moment here. The two wins that the Islanders have had, God, it's like giving birth. Right? Like, they, that's how tough it is to eliminate this Tampa team. So I'm not saying they can't do it, EJ. Of course they can. But boy, is it it's going to be a struggle because this Tampa team flat out just does not go away. And what keeps echoing in my mind is a conversation we've had many times during the course of the year: Are the Islanders going to come up a goal short? Yeah, and and because I think Tampa can get that goal when they need it. Certainly, come look how close they came to it. So if the Islanders win two more games in this one, it's it's going to be excruciatingly painful for the fans because. I think it's that close. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, you know, the Islanders, what they've done in the previous two series was they were able to wear out their opponent physically. They certainly did it to the Boston Bruins. The Pittsburgh Penguins were kind of a victim of their own bad goaltending. But uh, it's going to be harder to do that to the Tampa Bay Lightning. You saw Eric Chernak kind of leave the game and then come back in on a hit from Matt Martin, who's kind of a wrecking crew out there. Yeah. Handedly, and uh, you know it's it's a battle right now. And these guys, it, this is hard. Like, listen, we know it, Johnny. We've been watching this for years. The listeners know it. It's hard to win the Stanley Cup. These teams are very closely matched. All the teams in this league, even the teams that aren't that good, you put them in a seven-game series. I mean, it could be a really hard series because 
you know, the, there's so many great players, and it's a battle to win. And these teams, they know each other, uh, you know, seven-game series. Everybody's looking at video. Everybody knows everybody's tendencies. Uh, the games that we talked about earlier are called differently, which weighs into things as well. So uh, it's, uh, I mean, these two series are, are terrific right now in terms of the closeness of the games and the battle level. And, uh, you know, for me, if I'm the Islanders and if I'm Barry Trotz, I'm just trying to get every puck I can to the net. Because you watch the goals that are scored, there's not a lot of pretty ones being scored right nope. now. I would just try to get, especially with a goaltender as good as, Vasilevsky. I mean, just get every single puck to the net, force defenders to turn, force Vasilevsky to look for pucks and find rebounds and get guys to the net and and try to get those, you know, as they say, greasy, dirty goals because uh, that's, you know, yeah, it'd be nice if Matt Barzell came in and did a spinorama and scored, but, you know, the chances of that happening in a playoff game right now are, are unlikely. So for me, the message for all the teams, but particularly for the Islanders is get as many pucks at Vasilevsky as possible. And, uh, you know, the other thing I've noticed on for all the teams is, like, hit the net for oh, crying no. out loud. Yeah. All these goalies are good, and you're trying to be fine, but two cases last night, Josh Anderson in the first period comes across the slot. I mean, he's got Leonard at his mercy, and he misses the net over the top. And then in the third period, Alex Tuck came, comes flying down the slot. I mean, he's literally 15 feet out with no one in front of him and just rips it off the glass. And, you know, I see it all too often. So, I mean, that's the other message is you get pucks at the net because if you don't hit the net, you got no chance to score. And, uh, you know, I see too many times guys miss the net. So get for the honors, get pucks at the net as many as possible and uh, try to get bodies there and make the Lightning defend that area in front of the net. Yeah, because cause you, you saw it um, in the Islander series. You, you, get, you leave rebounds, too. You know, so even if your shot is like, oh, like, like I think sometimes because you said Leonard's a big guy, right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to aim for a spot or whatever. Sometimes just, just fire it off. It goes off the pads and it leaves a, it leaves a juicy rebound that can get exactly. poked home. I mean, so yeah, there's nothing. There's no such thing as a bad shot to me, unless it misses the net. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm totally with you. Uh, so. <laughs> And I, even on the broadcast last night, I know Anson Carter in the in the in between period, he was railing about it because I and I text him because we were both in in simpatico on that, and I even you know had a brief exchange with Mike Bossy last night, who's the all time example for hitting the net, and uh, you know these guys are great players now, and they got this you know the great tools, the sticks, and the whole thing, but you know too many guys miss the net in big spots. You got to hit the net to make something happen and uh that was just something that i noticed last night for sure all right so a lot of good stuff ej i really appreciate it this is fun we've got two great series i'm hoping for two game sevens it'll be that phenomenal so enjoy the rest of the run man we'll talk to you on monday and we'll i guess by then we'll know exactly who's playing for the cup that's we will and we'll know the schedule and it'll be uh you know we'll have i'm sure we'll have plenty more to discuss all right buddy i'll talk to you soon man all right, you got it. See ya. All right, that is the great EJ Raddick. So much to get into. Two phenomenal series in the semifinals and, again, the passing of Tom Curvers. So we'll be back with you again on Wednesday. 
and we'll get a little bit of a clearer picture on where we stand as far as these two semifinal matchups. But I think both are going to go Game 7, and I hope they both go to overtime. As stressful as that going to be for the four fan bases, but it's been entertaining. It's been fun. We'll be back with you again on Wednesday. You want to get in touch with me, the best way to do that, at Don LaGreca, hashtag Game Misconduct. Didn't get to any today because I wanted to get as much out of EJ as possible. So Wednesday we'll do a lot of the interaction with you guys out there at Don LaGreca, hashtag Game Misconduct. So enjoy the game tonight out in Tampa, Game 5 between the Lightning and the Islanders. It's back on NBC Sportsnet tonight for an 8 o'clock face-off, and then Tuesday the Game 5 back in Vegas at 9, the Canadians and the Golden Knights. So we'll talk to you again on Wednesday. This was the Monday edition of Game Misconduct. This is the Game Misconduct Podcast with Don LaGreca.